You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Um, so today we are going to be in Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not have one, there should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that Bible with you today as a gift from us. So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, it's Exodus chapter 27. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. And as it has been shown you on the mountain, so it shall be made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning to you. My name is Cor, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And I want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. If it is your first time, we're really glad that you're here. And we hope that you enjoy yourself with us this morning. Uh, As Jenna said, we've been working through the book of Exodus. We have been talking about the tabernacle for the last four or five weeks. And uh, I think Ty actually mentioned this in the first sermon, how uh, the, the book of Exodus kind of starts to explain the tabernacle from its most you know, intimate inner space, which is the Holy of Holies, and then makes its way working outwardly. So I think we've covered, you know, the Ark of the Covenant and then uh, the table of the bread of presence in the most holy place, the lampstand. We've talked about the exterior of the tabernacle now and how that was built. And this morning, what we're going to be talking about is the outer courts of the tabernacle and particularly the bronze altar that stands right outside the tabernacle itself. And so, um, In particular, the topic that we're going to be discussing is the nature of sacrifice in the Old Covenant and how it carries over into the New Covenant. What's different for us now in Christ than it was back then? I'm pretty sure that for most of us, the most obvious and basic thing is that we're not about to kill an animal later this morning, right? That's probably the most basic thing. But what else? What should we say about sacrifice? What does the Bible say about it? And then how does the new covenant not only fulfill, but lead us into that new understanding of sacrifice without doing away with it. So what I'd like to do before I jump into the text is uh, pray for us, ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. And so if you'll bow your heads, I'll do that and then we'll jump in. Father, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus, boldly, confidently, not because we are confident in our own moral record, but because we're confident that the perfect sacrifice of Jesus has been accepted and that we now can come before you in your presence and and make requests and ask what we will. And so we ask this morning 
that you would speak to us through the power of your word and the movement of your Holy Spirit. That each of us individually, Lord, you know us more than we know ourselves. You know our needs, our desires. And so we ask, my God, that you would meet those supernaturally this morning. We can rely on that because your words promise that you're here amongst us and that you're actively ministering to us. And so we, we plead with you that you do something unique in us. Secondarily, Lord, we pray collectively that as a church, we have needs, need, needy areas of our own hearts that we need to mature and we need to grow collectively. And so we do ask that you would you'd speak powerfully this morning through your word and that you would help to shape and mold us in those areas. And, and Lord, that we would leave out of here encouraged with the peace that's only offered and the joy that's only offered in the gospel. And that we would leave out of here with our hearts lighter because we know that our consciences can be clean through the blood that was shed for us on the cross. And so we ask all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So as Jenna read, the first thing that you would see when you would walk into the outer courts where the tabernacle would reside, and there's these really cool maps that you can find online if you just look up, like what would the encampment of Israel would have looked like, and God had particularly designed that they would, they would encamp the tents of the 12 tribes around the center, which would be where the tabernacle would reside in the outer courts. It's pretty cool if you ever get a chance. You can just Google that, go to Google Images, and uh, it's pretty cool to look at. But if you walked into the outer courts, the first thing that you would see would be the tent, the tabernacle, and right outside of it would have been the brazen altar. Now, you may be thinking, well, what's the point of this? Because isn't it just the high priest is supposed to go into the most holy place and then ultimately go into the Holy of Holies once a year to make sacrifices for the sins of the people there on the Day of Atonement? Or, uh, you know, why is it they need this bronze altar? And the reason for that is because there were daily sacrifices that the priests were required to make for the sins of the people, both intentional and unintentional. And this happened regularly every day, all of the time, there would be uh, offerings of lambs and of oxen. And of, if, you were, uh, if you didn't have money for those things, turtle doves, grain, all of this was laid upon the bronze altar, which was a square, five cubit by five cubit. It was set up a little bit higher from the ground. It had a grate on it, and so you would, the, the animal would be killed, and then that animal would be, half of it burned, the ashes would fall through the grate, and the other half of the ashes would be brought outside the camp. That was the idea. And it was prominently placed in front of the tabernacle, as we know, so that all of the children of Israel, along with the priest, would remember the first thing that has to be dealt with as we go to worship God is sin. Sin has to be dealt with with sacrifice. Now, I want to make mention of this. I wish I could spend more time on it, but it's very interesting. Uh, and one of the main reasons why I think this sermon this morning is important for Christians is when we think of the word worship, we typically think of songs, so when I say, hey, let's get ready to worship, you think we're getting ready to sing. And, that's, and there's nothing wrong with that to an extent, right? It's like we have a whole book of Psalms. It's definitely our heritage. And this is what we do. We sing worship unto Christ, uh, and, and, it's, and it's worship. But the Old Testament saints would not have thought this way. That would not be the first thing that came to their minds. When you would have told a brother or a sister, let us go to the house of the Lord and worship, they would have thought sacrifice. They would have not gone to get their guitar, they would have gone to the barn and got their animals. Which is a little bit odd, isn't it? It's totally different. But that's how they worshipped. 
So much so that David at one point is offered to, uh, someone else offers to pay for his sacrifice, his worship. And he says, far be it for me to ever offer unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. He says, I won't do it. He was the king. Somebody wanted to come along and say, you're the king. You don't have to pay anything. And he said, no, I do. Because to him, sacrifice and worship were interconnected. You couldn't, you couldn't worship if there was no sacrifice. That's what the old covenant saw. Now, we're going to get into this. And Well, if that's true, Court, then why are you saying it's okay for us to think about songs? Well, we're going to get into it because it's not that the new covenant Christian, when we sing, that we don't think that sacrifice is involved. We're singing about a sacrifice that was once for all. Okay? But I don't want to get too far ahead. So what did the bronze altar do? On the bronze altar, sacrifices were not just made for people. Okay? Not just the everyday, run-of-the-mill, you know, all of you regular people have to have sacrifice. No, every group represented in Israel had to make sacrifices on the bronze altar. This would be the people as individuals. It would be priests. This would be leaders, later kings. And even sins, intentional or unintentional, of the whole congregation, there were sacrifices made on the bronze altar. It had four horns on the altar, and on these horns, the blood of the animals would be spread. And basically, the way that this would work is you'd bring, on the, on the four horns, they would use those to tie ropes around the animal, so that the animal, as it is being killed, is tied down. And the children of Israel were required, if your sins are being sacrificed for, you had to lay your hands on the animal. Physically lay your hands on the animal as it's killed. That's pretty gory, isn't it? I mean, they're only going to have a few more gory things, okay? And then we're going to move on. You lay your hands on the animal as it's killed. And there's a reason for this. And the reason for this was a symbol of imputation. The person's sins are being imputed to the animal, and the animal is taking the punishment. That's the idea. So the laying on of hands was this union for a moment of the person who's being sacrificed for and the sacrifice itself The justice is poured out on the animal. Mercy is what the person gets. That was the idea of laying on of hands. Have you ever wondered why we lay hands on each other? It's not this gory, by the way. The reason is the union that you're saying is between you and that person. I bind my faith with this person, and we're laying on our hands for them. There's a union in that moment. That's why you do that. Now, once the animal is killed, there's an offering. They light the fire. Half of the ashes go outside of the camp. Now, this is really strategic because in the book of Hebrews... What the book of Hebrews tells us is, in chapter number 13, Christ was beaten, mocked, scorned as the sacrifice within the the temple itself, that area. And then what? He's taken outside to the place of the skull at Golgotha, and that's where he's crucified, right? So the lamb finally is taken outside the camp and crucified there. And the book of Hebrews tells us that we should go out and suffer with him who suffered outside the camp. All this is fulfillment of what was going on in the bronze altar, right? Now, in the book of 1 Kings chapter number 1, there's a really important story that I think gives a, a good word picture of what's actually happening at the bronze altar. In the book of 1 Kings chapter number 1, David is an old man, King David, and he's dying. And during this time, when an old king is dying, typically there's a lot of movement that happens, particularly among the sons, because they begin jockeying for position who's going to get the throne. And this happens with David's sons. David's son Adonijah wants the throne, and so he goes to some of the prominent men of Israel and some of the soldiers, and he gets together and basically ascertains that he's the king. Tells everybody, I'm the chosen one. David gets wind of this. He tells 
uh, Nathan the prophet to come with him, and they anoint Solomon as king because that was David's choice. Now, this would have been a big moment because now, once if the king's still alive, King David was an old man, and he chose someone else. Now, that's dangerous for the guy who decided that he was going to tell everyone he was the choice for king, right? So when Adonijah hears of this, he does something very interesting. He runs to the, to the altar, and he grabs a hold of the horns of the altar, this bronze altar. And so Solomon is told, you know, Solomon's going to you know, take care of business. It's a very euphemistic term for he, he's going to try to find Adonijah and kind of handle who's the real king here. And they tell him, well, Adonijah is at the horns of the altar, and he's laid hands on the horns of the altar. And so Solomon's response is, let him go back to his house and to his family. And he gives grace to Adonijah. That's how he responds. Now, what's this all about? Well, I think what this does is it underscores and gives us a word picture of what is really happening at the bronze altar, not just old covenant, but even new covenant. The starting line for the Christian is a recognition that our sin, whether intentional or unintentional, is not merely a small infraction that can be swept away easily, but that our sin is an assault on the very throne of God, the King of heaven. That's what our sin is. We have to take ourselves all the way back to the book of Genesis and see that Satan the serpent wanted to ascend above the Most High and take the throne of God for himself, and we became co-conspirators with him, much like the men who went with Adonijah to make him the king even though he wasn't chosen to be the king. And that the only way that we cannot be destroyed for that act is mercy. There's no combat. Adonijah could not have beaten Solomon in a hand-to-hand combat. Solomon was the king. Everyone was behind him. He would have been squashed. Similarly, we don't win through self-justification and pleading with God about why we did the things that we did or why we've decided to assault the throne of heaven. We come back into communion with God by running to the horns of the altar and receiving mercy. Not combat. That's the idea. So the question becomes, and this is what Paul would say when he said that there's basically a line drawn through the middle of human history saying that there are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Paul's saying that the question of all humanity is, are you seeking combat or are you seeking mercy? Are you pleading your own case, your own justification of your own actions on the basis of your own moral standing before God? Or are you pleading for mercy, claiming justification based on the sacrifice of another, based on the sacrifice of Christ, and on his moral standing before the Father alone. Those, that's the dividing line of humanity. It's not a question of whether we've assaulted the throne. That's already, that's already factual. All right, We've already made that move. The question is, how then do we handle it? Now turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 10. And I'm excited to go here because uh, we haven't had a chance to do a ton in Hebrews through the Exodus series, but I do want to mention to you, Hebrews serves as a, as a kind of decoder for the Old Testament in many ways, particularly the story of Exodus, the story of Leviticus. And so if you've never read the book of Hebrews, I, I encourage you to read through it. It gives you, much in, it gives you much clarity about what's happening in the Old Covenant and why it's important. Now, as you're turning in there, Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to read a handful of verses here. The question that we need to answer is this. As New Testament Christians, post-resurrection and ascension, what does it mean for us that we should live lives of, let's say, sacrifice, which the New Testament is full and repute with examples that we're called to do so? What should we say about the nature of sacrifice 
knowing that we no longer are called to live underneath the sacrificial system. So when we read Exodus, we kind of, this is one of the reasons why your Bible reading plans typically kind of peter out around Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus, right? You start reading this kind of stuff and you say, well, this is, why do I need to know that the bronze altar is five cubits by five cubits? And you know, what's the point of this? Well, I want to answer that question because I think there's a ditch on either side of the road. One is to say sacrifice is done and there's no meaning for it at all. And we know we can just basically close up that book. The other side of that is to say that we're going to continue on with sacrifice. Maybe it's not animals, but we're still trying to make atoning sacrifices for our own sin and the way that we live before God. And I think that that's an anti-gospel too. So there's a middle way and I want to aim for that. Starting Hebrews chapter number 10, I'm going to read a handful of verses here. So this is what the writer of Hebrews says. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Two things I want to point out. One is, if you ever wonder why we got heav- where we get heavenly shadows for this, okay, this is the idea. The Old Covenant, Exodus, are he- these are heavenly shadows of New Testament realities that Christ perfectly fulfills in his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and ultimately the rule of his kingdom as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Everything you see in the Old Covenant is pointing to a substantive reality in Christ. It is but the shadow, but the real substance belongs to Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. But the other thing that he's saying here is that because it's just the shadow, the old covenant cannot make perfect the worshiper who draws near on the basis of bulls and goats and their sacrifices. The old covenant, the writer of Hebrews is saying, is not sufficient to do what needs to be done to make us holy. Now, this is why, if you ever wondered why perhaps many of the the Jews were very offended by Christian doctrine and they were adamant about killing men like Paul and others. It's this kind of talk. He's saying that the old covenant can't do what needs to be done. Let's continue. Verse two, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, key verse, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And why do I call that a key verse? Because only two or three chapters earlier, the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Ah, you have to have the shedding of blood to have remission of sins, but the blood of bulls and goats won't cut it. What is the deduction that we can take from that? There's got to be another who shed blood. Let's continue. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. By the way, this is a quote from Psalm chapter number 40. King David is writing this, not knowing that these are prophetic words about Christ from Christ, is what the book of Hebrews says. Now, I want to read this again, because I know that many of us, we don't want to think about things that may, we may think, well, if I think that, it's going to be offensive to God. But let me ask you this. When you read sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, don't you think in your head, God is the one who set up the sacrificial system and the offerings. Why did he not desire them? I know that's, I'm getting close to sacrilege and some of you guys are like, whoa, don't question God. I agree. But have you ever thought about that? Like the book of Isaiah starts like this. The prophet says, who has required this trampling of my courts? New moons, feasts, Sabbaths all these things that you keep doing. I hear the bleeding of goats and blood. Who's required this? They are gross to me. Well, that's God speaking. And you can't help but say, 
God's the one who required that, those things. So what's really happening in this text? Everything that we see in the old covenant is not the end game, but a symbol and a shadow to the end game. God's ultimate desire was not for Israel to be continually sinning and swimming neck deep in animals' blood, but that they would see the significance of the sacrifice when they see this animal die, the significance of sin and how bad it is, and then when Christ were to come, he would end this forever in his singular sacrifice. That's the end game of God. So sacrifices and offerings are not God's desire, but a body that he prepared for his son. Let's continue. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, I have be- behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Now this is key Christian theology. He has done away with the first in order to establish the second. Well, what's the first and what's the second? He does away with the sacrificial system in order to establish the will of God in Christ Jesus, the gospel itself. Christ is the fulfillment by doing the will of God, dying on our behalf, and then by faith in him, we no longer have the sacrificial system, but one sacrifice once for all, and that's what's been reinstated. That's what's been instated while this has been done away with. Verse 10, by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. This is a really key line, once for all. All of the sacrifices. I told the nine o'clock service this. When Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter number eight, they killed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. I want you guys to think about that for a second. My, my grandmother ranches cattle, and my family has for a couple hundred years. If you've ever been around when an animal dies or it's butchered, the amount of blood in one oxen would shock you. 22,000 of them at the temple, not counting the 120,000 sheep, all for one ceremony. At one point, in that chapter 8, it says there's so many animals around that no one could number them. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I just start thinking about this. I'm like, think about the priests. They're just legitimately, I know this is gory, they're legitimately swimming in blood. So what this has to be. And I think that this is because Solomon understands something here that we have lost, and that is there is no amount of of shedding of animal blood that would make this right. And he knew it. He knew that there was never going to be. Did you know in the book, in the book of first uh, Kings chapter eight, it says the bronze altar was too small for all these sacrifices. So he just took the entirety of the floor of the outer courts and he dedicated it and consecrated it to God. That's where they killed everything. There was no amount of blood that was going to make up for the sins of the people. And Solomon, I think in his wisdom understood this. Hebrews is saying that in one sacrifice, in the person of Jesus Christ, everything's been fulfilled, and that's done. That's done. Now, 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 when we bring this down into our heart of hearts, we think that means that there's not a moment that you and I could tell God, let me make a deal with you. I'll do this so that you'll accept me. And he would say, okay, that sounds good. That's what the old covenant's about. It's for you and I to recognize there's, there's no life, there's no plan you could draw out and say, God, I'll give you my whole life. I'll give you. No, no. 
even if you did your entire life as you, as you think would be the most righteous, it doesn't touch the, the hem of the garment of the sacrifice that needs to be made for you and I. And I'm, I'm, I'm pausing here so that we can think about how is it that we apply the sacrificial system poorly and we do things like this. God, I know that I haven't been right. Um, I'm, I'm gonna start doing more prayer time. I'm gonna start doing more service I'm, so, so that we can get closer. I've heard people tell me at times, um, I'm not gonna come to church because you know just haven't been doing very well. We haven't been in our... Our marriage isn't all that good. Once we get that worked out, then we'll start coming back to church. And I'm thinking, pause for a second. You never were accepted by God on the basis of any of your righteousness. That's not why we can sing. Now, to get back to why we sing for worship, we sing because we rejoice in the fact that the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, has been paid. And what do we sing about? We sing about that sacrifice. So when we come in, we're thanking God that the knife isn't to our throat We're saying, thank you, Jesus, that you've already taken that for us and it's done and that not only are we accepted, but everyone who calls upon your name is accepted, which gives us boldness. We could tell people, you don't have to make your way to God. Christ already made a way, died for you. And that way is open and available to you just as his torn flesh was opened on the cross. How open is it for whosoever will go? That's how you can get into the presence of God. But there's only one body. His name's Jesus. One sacrifice. So it's not that you got to clean up and then you can get back into good graces with God. No, you were never clean. You're not going to ever get to that place except by calling upon the name of Jesus. And then guess what? Then you're as clean as he is. Which is incredible to think about. Now listen to this, verse 11. This is, a very, this is kind of a shot at the Jewish people of the day. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Paul is... In some ways, he's trying to provoke his Jewish audience to say, why are you accepting the shadow and rejecting the substance? I took my, we took our son yesterday to main event for his birthday. To all the parents, don't do it. Unless you're forced to, and then you, know, you do go for it. But um, when I was a kid, they used to give you tokens for arcades. Um, now they give you these little like credit card things to give your kids, which... It's really, uh, it's ingenious if you want to just ruin families, but because, you know, tokens, it's like you only have so many, you know, in your pocket. This is like, you put as much money on as you want, and your kid keeps coming back. It's like, you paid $7 to, you know, ride that ride or whatever it was. Anyway, the Jews were doing this in Paul's mind. As I give my son the card with however many credits on, say, go play the games, it would be like my son Jonas looking back at me and say, dad, all I need is the card. Let's go on home. The card represents the joy that he's going to have to actually play the games. It represents something. These are the credits that he has, credit. And the Jews were saying, all we want is the shadow of the thing. We only want the symbol. We only want the representation. We don't want to experience the actual thing, which is Christ. And Paul is saying, why are you doing this? You priests keep on killing animals. Why are you doing this rather than accepting the one sacrifice that was made for you? And the reason for this, and friends, this is still the truth today. The reason many reject Christ is because in order for us to accept him, we have to acknowledge that we were the one who killed him, and the Jews didn't want to do that. They didn't want to say that they were unwise, and they killed the very Messiah that they were supposed to be looking for. And we don't want to admit that we're sinners, and that we killed the very Christ that we should have been looking for. So we stay in our pride, and what do we do? We make our own deals, our own sacrifices, we become our own gods, and ultimately it's a death. 
But Christ still stands at the ready saying, why don't you come in here and stop making your own sacrifices repeatedly daily and just receive my sacrifice. Okay. But what does it mean though for us that the New Testament keeps talking about you and I still being living sacrifices then? If if to sacrifice or to continue to pretend like our sacrifice is what causes us to be accepted, is an affront to the gospel, then why does the New Testament keep calling us to live as sacrifices? I'm going to give you an example. This is Romans chapter 12. I'm just going to read verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, this is Paul, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So what's going on here? Here's what it is. Our lives and all the sacrifices we make are for the glory of God and to magnify the atonement that's already been made. They aren't atoning sacrifices. And that's a very, very big difference. When we sacrifice as Christians, we are not sacrificing in the hopes of being accepted. We are sacrificing because we have been accepted and to magnify that acceptance on the basis of an atonement that wasn't ours. Does this make sense? Those are two totally different things. Instead of trying to make our way to God, our sacrifice is worshipfully honoring God, mirroring our Savior's life in complete submission and singularity of purpose, namely to glorify the Father. So we're making much of the real sacrifice when we sacrifice, not trying to be the ultimate sacrifice ourselves. So what does it look like? Well, the brazen altar stood at the, at the door of the tabernacle for daily sacrifices. And here's what the Lord Jesus tells us. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and then follow me. This is interesting because the cross is the very instrument of death upon which Christ died to be our sacrifice. And years before he actually went to the cross or even told them that's how he was going to die, he told them, this is how you must die. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He told them, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself and die. The famous theologian and pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who obviously died during World War II as he was opposing the Nazi regime, he said, the calling of Jesus to himself is a calling, come and die. Now that may sound gory to you, but listen, we do this in baptism, don't we? Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. The way to newness of life is through the death. So to follow Jesus is to deny yourself, die to your old self, take up your cross, come to newness of life. Christ went through the cross and then he was raised. We die to self and then we're raised to walk in newness of life with him. You see, we're called to the altar to receive these new mercies every day. Despite our sin, which was an assault on the king of heaven, daily we're called back to the altar not because we're called to endure the physical pain of death like the animals were, because Jesus endured that for us, but instead so that we could spiritually put our flesh to death. We put the old us to death. The old you dies again every morning as we come back to the altar of heaven with the blood of Christ. I want to give you four verses of one of the most I think glaring examples of the New Testament, a man who lived in the times of the apostles, and that is the apostle Paul. These are four verses that I want to read for you, and I'll try to read them quickly. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. This is Paul after 
He just said that some people are preaching the gospel just to try and stir up the prison guards to beat me up more. And then he said, but I'm just happy they're preaching the gospel. Now watch what he says here. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now you might be thinking that he just only believes he's going to get out of this, but that's not what he means. Verse 20, as it is my eager and expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul's deliverance was not only that he'd be rescued or even if he were to die. He thought the dying would have been better because now he gets to be with Christ physically. And then this is the most famous line, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul lived a life post the Damascus experience that Saul of Tarsus died. To, to him to live was Christ. Saul of Tarsus was dead. The old man with all the, he, all the Hebrew scholarship, the old man that was you know, a tribe of Benjamin, a zealot of zealots, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that man died in, at Damascus. And now when he lived, he lived as unto Christ. So his life was a living sacrifice. It's all about Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. This is Paul. Guys, this is not normal religious language. Are, we, are you with me on this? Like, this is not normal stuff. He's saying, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Listen to this. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, it's not my life. I don't even live anymore. It's Christ living in me and through me. He was united. Paul understood, if we are to unite ourselves in faith to Christ for forgiveness of sins, we also must unite ourselves in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's not like you just get resurrection. We're all trying to hotwire that, aren't we? It's like we're sinners. I unite myself in the resurrection. No, death first. Into the grave of baptism. You no longer live, but Christ in and through you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, Paul says. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to what? Please him. Paul said, my whole life is about pleasing God. That's it. It's a singular focus. It's not Saul of Tarsus wants to be wise. Saul of Tarsus wants to be seen as, you know, a, a Hebrew scholar. No, to please God. That's it. And then my favorite verse, perhaps in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul the apostle speaking with the Ephesian elders, he says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul only wanted to finish the course that God had set out for him in his new life, and then he wanted to go home and be with Jesus. Everything else was details Every day that he got out of prison and didn't get beheaded, he just said, okay, God just wants me to be here more to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. But he knew where he was headed. There was a singular focus for this man. I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself. How could he say that? Because he died. Saul of Tarsus was no more. And my guess is that Saul of Tarsus every single day, tried to claw back at Paul. We know this because Romans 7 tells us Saul of Tarsus kept trying to come back out of the grave and Saul would say, you're dead. Now I live unto Christ. 
That's what it means to be a living sacrifice, is every morning we wake up and say, the old you is no more. The new you, under the glory of God, is alive. Okay, Court, that's very uh, theoretical. What does it mean, boots on the ground? Well, many of you may have heard this. These are just questions to ask yourself to think of it very practically. Time, talents, and treasures are one way to think about your life. It goes like this. God has allotted for you a specific amount of time on earth which you are going to live, and you're called to glorify him in this time. So the question is, what are you doing with your time? Because it's not your time, it's his time. You're just stewarding it. Every day is God's day that you're stewarding for him. Number two, your talents. God has uniquely gifted you in specific areas of your life. This is both natural gifts and supernatural gifts. Some of you were born good at something. We know it because we're not good at it. Some of you have been supernaturally in your new birth. You've been given gifts that you didn't have before. But the question is, those talents were given to you by God for his glory. So what are you doing with the talents God gave you? And then number three, treasures. You know, some of us, we all kind of think of ourselves on a a pendulum, but we typically tend to uh, compare ourselves to our neighbors. And so we might think, you know, I'm relatively poor in the room, but I think we should do a better job of thinking of ourselves in a global sense, and then also all across time. That would put us at wealthy. So we've been apportioned a certain amount of wealth by God, all of us differently. All of our possessions, all of our finances are given to us by God for his glory. So the question becomes, how are you using your treasure to glorify God? Jesus said, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old where moth and rust cannot destroy. How do you do that? Giving generosity radically to kingdom endeavors for the advancement of things that are eternal. And when that pinches, that's the living sacrifice because what you're saying is like, Paul, I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself. I'm, I'm giving this away because it's his. Okay, in closing, one of the reasons I think this is very important, and I'm specifically talking to young people right now, there is a crisis of meaning with young people. I read a statistic in an article about... Uh, there's a drastic drop-off of young people uh, aren't even interested in getting their driver's licenses. They just don't care. And uh, I was personally shocked by that because when I was young, I got my driver's license at 15. I got a hardship license for various different reasons. But one of those is I wanted to drive at seven. You know? Because in my mind, you just, you know, when you're young, you just picture the open road and That's what I want to go do. Now, none of us even usually get to the open road because, number one, we're broke. Number two, our cars break down. At least mine did. But you have that dream for it. But So what it did to me is make me think, well, what's going on in our young people that they don't even have that desire? And what was coupled with some of this was meaning and purpose for life is starting to dwindle. It's like, what what do I really care? I mean, my mom can drive me there or whatever. And I think that it's because there's been an abandonment of this invitation from Christ and a lack of understanding from the Christian, particularly to young people. And this is the shift that has to happen. We have to shift away from seeing sacrificial living as an atoning work that we're doing. And we have to shift towards seeing sacrificial living as an invitation from God to join him in what he's doing. I'm going to say that again. When Christians live sacrificially... It's not, oh, we do it begrudgingly because we have to atone for our sins. No, it's an invitation from God for us to live in a way that joins him in what he's doing and makes much of his atoning work. 
God is about the business of reconciling the world to himself. There's no greater vision. There's no greater thing that's happening in the world. There's no sports team. There's no job. There's no business. Amazon employment will not give you the joy that being a part of God's reconciling work will give you. It's not even close. The cubicles that we're offering to our children to go and work in right out of college. Oh man, that's a real fulfilling It's like, no, that's a necessary thing sometimes for the real fulfilling work, which is to be a part of God's reconciling of the world to himself. When we're at the marriage supper of the lamb, we're not going to be all talking about, I really killed it in sales that one quarter. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't kill it in sales. I'm saying kill it in sales so that we can be fishers of men. Kill it in sales so that we can take the majority of that money and start planting more churches, sending more missionaries so that people will go from darkness to light. And when we're sitting around the marriage supper of the lamb, we'll say, remember all the great things that we did for God? Let me rephrase. We won't be saying that. We're saying, remember all the great work God did through us? <laughs> it's like when my son helps me do things, you know, I always use this example. He helps me build something. He doesn't do a lot of building, but I'm glad that he's there. That's how I am as a pastor. God's already doing the building. I'm just glad to be here. God's glad I'm here. A lot of times I'm hindering the work. I'm not even really helping. I'm hitting my thumb and he has to bind up my wounds. It's like, oh, I mean, court really knows the Bible. No, court is like, you know, fumbling around in the dark and trying to read shards of, of letters. God's good at doing the work, but he's invited us into it. We need to come back to this and challenge and bring our, our young people. Young people, hear me when I say this. There is no greater fulfillment than you'll have than to advance the kingdom of God, than to advance the kingdom of our Christ through his gospel. Every other thing is ancillary and really only has meaning as far as it's connected to the real truth of the real meaning of the gospel advancing. In this age, there is no job, there is no degree that's going to give you what the gospel gives. When people die on, on their deathbeds, uh, they have these, um, these books that you can read about, you know, what were they really most discouraged about, but when they look back and their regrets. And one thing you never read is something like, wish I would have managed my portfolio better. Now hear me, maybe they, they wish they would have. It's just not what they're thinking about in the moment. They're thinking about transcendent things. They're thinking about eternal things. What's interesting is one thing you see a lot of people talk about is estranged relationships with family members that they literally have loathed their whole life, but they still can't help but feel like they wish they would have made it right. And it's like, well, who cares? You don't even like them. Let me tell you who cares. You're talking about eternal things. God is the one who gave you your family. God's the one who made you. And what you're dealing with here is eternally transcendent that only Christ can deal with. So I'm going to leave you with this. I want you to ask the Lord, if you're a Christian in the room, if you're a non-Christian in the room, what I would like for you to do is receive the ultimate sacrifice that is Jesus Christ and experience freedom from trying to earn your own salvation. It's available to you. Christ calls you to himself this morning, and I pray you would receive him. If you're a Christian in the room, here's what I want to ask you to do. Ask the Lord where he would have you begin to sacrifice. And do something that, makes you feel a little bit of a pinch, something that may defy worldly logic. It doesn't need to seem big to your neighbor or big to the world, but it needs to feel big to you. It may be like the little boy's lunch when he shows up and he gives the five loaves and the two fish. To the disciples, they scoffed at this. They said, we have 5,000 people to feed. What's this boy's lunch going to do? To the boy, it was all he had. This is everything he has. And what did Jesus do? 
he fed thousands of men, women, and children with it, right? So it doesn't need to feel big to your neighbor, but it has to feel for you. The disciples gave their lives after the book of Acts was closed. All of them died martyrs' deaths. But the church grew so rapidly from 120 people in the upper room that within a few centuries, Rome itself was conquered by the Christian faith. They couldn't deny it anymore. And they didn't do this by power of arms. They did it by the power of God and living sacrifice. So this morning, my challenge to you is ask the Lord, very simply, what is it you'd have me to lay down? But the number one thing that we must do together is whatever the Lord lays on our hearts to make a shift with this morning, we must make sure of one thing. We take it as an act of faith, not believing that any of our sacrifices can atone for our sin, but that instead our sacrifice brings glory and honor to the one who already atoned for our sin. That's key, friends. This morning, I want you to worship freely knowing your sin's been atoned for in Jesus and no one can take it away from you. And, and, and no amount of money that goes in the offering box or doesn't go in the offering box can take it away from you. It's yours in Christ because he freely gave it. And so whatever we choose to sacrifice, let it be an act of trust in the one who already gave everything. Let it be from our acceptance, not for our acceptance. The for is done. It's from what's already yours. Let me pray for us and then we'll worship. Father, we... As your children now, we thank you that your atonement is sure. For my friends right now that don't have clear consciences in the room, Lord, if they are in Christ, do not let them leave out of here without being freed from the bondage that the enemy would like to keep on their conscience. But free them, my God, by reminding them of the gospel that they are forgiven in you, cleansed in you, Jesus. Help us to be a people that more accurately, more profoundly mirror your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, in the way we live. All of us have different stories, God, so I pray you would specifically speak to each of us on what it is that you would have us do in order to be obedient. And in so doing, that there would be purpose and meaning and joy that would flood into our lives as we're reminded that we're a part of something much greater than what the world offers. And finally, Lord, may the words of our mouths as we sing bring glory to the sacrifice that Jesus made so that when we come before you, we can be even ever more confident that we are accepted. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.